Once the pandemic passes, what's the new normal? How will COVID reshape our jobs, pay, benefits? We have to accept the reality that the germ is going to have a direct impact, regardless of what the government does, on our economy. What could it mean for industries important to South Florida, like tourism and healthcare? I'm Tom Hudson. Today on the Sunshine Economy, the new normal. Also on today's program, catching up with a bartender, baker, and banker navigating the pandemic economy week to week. We're essentially saving about $100 a month just in rent. By January, we can have things up and running, at least one or two locations in Miami. I've basically been telling you, oh, you know, my customers seem to be doing fine. And and this was not this uh, customer story. It's all ahead after the news. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public media. The phrase new normal has become the usual. It's how elected leaders make plans for how to reopen the economy after restrictions were put in place to slow the spread of COVID-19. It's how businesses, schools, and other institutions refer to operating with new rules like social distancing and limited capacity. It's shorthand for whatever changes in our lives the virus is foisting upon us. The new normal. But just how long these changes will remain new or normal is a mystery. The virus continues spreading. Hospital admissions have been climbing. Work from home for those who can is the rule. Tens of thousands of people remain unemployed. Rent and mortgages are overdue. Thousands of people in South Florida are having a tough time affording food. More than one and a half million are having a tough time paying for normal household expenses. Restrictions remain on hospitality and travel businesses as the pandemic enters its ninth month. The new normal is losing its newness as the virus keeps circulating. In 2021, it'll still be there, and we're still going to have to deal with it. That's Nicholas Christakis. He's a sociologist and former hospice doctor. He runs the Human Nature Lab at Yale University. The lab focuses on how we think, feel, and behave toward others. Emotions and actions at the heart of the response to the pandemic. The American public is being called upon to work together and to sacrifice. And we have to maturely accept this challenge. We see this challenge in the United Kingdom and across Europe with the return of restrictions as infections surge there. Here in the United States, Chicago has banned bars and restaurants again from serving customers inside. Some reopening efforts have been rolled back in Idaho and Connecticut. Areas experiencing a sharp increase of infections are returning to some of the same tools used in the springtime in hopes of slowing the spread and keeping hospitals from being overrun with COVID-19 patients. Florida remains open. There remain some restrictions in South Florida. Restaurants and bars in Miami-Dade County, for instance, can operate with at least half capacity, maybe more if they can spread out tables and chairs enough. Fort Lauderdale bars can only have half their capacity inside, and some areas still have overnight curfews. Christakis expects this new normal will last at least a few years, even when a vaccine has been discovered and the new normal will continue to affect the economy. His new book is Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. It's part history book of pandemics and predictions about how COVID-19 will influence the economy for years to come. We spoke on Friday. 
plagues have been a part of the human experience for thousands of years, why should we be any different? I mean, why would why would 21st century Americans, despite our wealth and our knowledge and our power and our democracy, this pathogen doesn't care about those things. And so we are going to have to face this germ and accept this reality. So 2021, we're still going to be there. We're still going to have to deal with it. Um, it is still going to be circulating. I don't think we will yet have reached herd immunity. I don't think a vaccine will be widely available until 2022. And so I think in that in uh, we're going to be dealing with it. We're going to still be wearing masks. We're going to still have to close our schools intermittently, engage in physical distancing, uh, restrict travel, perhaps ban gatherings. We're going to have to do all of these things that we've been doing so far, if we wish to avoid, um, you know, the death and destruction that follow this pathogen. One of the many things that's fascinating about your book is how you are willing to project into the immediate and intermediate future. What does 2022 look like? Right. Well, yeah. So so the unfortunate reality is we're not at the beginning of the end of this pandemic. We are just at the end of the beginning. We are just beginning the opening act of this pandemic. So what's going to happen is in 2021, we will probably invent a vaccine, which is amazing that our scientists have been able to do this. But that's just the first step. After inventing the vaccine, we have to manufacture it. You know, we need glass vials. We need factories. We we have to then distribute it, and it, it needs to be kept refrigerated the whole time. This is something known as the cold chain, which is not an easy thing to distribute something in the cold non from manufacturing to injection. And most importantly, we have to accept it, which means that American public has to willingly be vaccinated. And so I think even if we invent a vaccine in 2021, all those other steps will get us into 2022. Meanwhile, the germ is still spreading. 2022 is a landmark year for us. We either have uh, invented and distributed a vaccine or we reach herd immunity. And that's the moment when the biological and epidemiological impact of the virus is behind us. But there are other impacts that we still have to deal with. And you also talk about 2024 as a bit of a earmark year, maybe not a landmark year, but an earmark year. <laughs> yeah. Well, because what happens is if you look at the history of epidemics, after the initial shock of the germ hitting the population is over, people are still recovering from the social, psychological, and economic shock. And you can just see that in our own society. Businesses aren't going to suddenly return to normal when in 2022 – Many businesses will have gone out of business. Uh, Americans are not going to just suddenly decide to return to airports or to restaurants or to cruises. It's going to take a while for them to kind of take off their masks and begin to venture outside and, and slowly recover and for businesses to tool up again. So typically that period of time, that social, psychological, and economic recovery takes some time. And I think it might take one to two years. So I think the intermediate period, so the, so the initial period will last, I think, until 2022. Then the intermediate period, I think, until 2024. And then I think we're going to have the post-pandemic period, which I think is going to be a time of, you know, just great social interactions. I think people are going to swarm to, to, to public gatherings, to sporting events, to, to political rallies. I think that there's going to be a resurgence in spending, you know, all the penny pinching and abstemiousness of the 
coming years will suddenly reverse. And this is typically what has happened in past pandemics. And so, so that's when I think that, um, you know, I think that we'll have a different uh, moment in 2024. You talk about the social end to the pandemic. Contagious disease is not only a biological, but also a social phenomenon. And therefore, we can speak not only about the biological end, but also the social end of the phenomenon. And so I think the time will come when we will, you know, have put this behind us, both biologically and socially. And I think the biological end might come before the social end of this pandemic. As we're talking today, Nicholas, Florida has 5,500 new cases, the highest daily count in Florida in 10 weeks. Almost 17,000 Floridians have died. What do those statistics tell you about the state of the virus in Florida? I generally don't focus on cases because uh, the, the number of cases can be very sensitive to how much testing is being done how um, how that's being reported or handled. And so I just tend to focus on deaths. And, and the problem with deaths is that it's a lagging indicator. So deaths lag cases by about three weeks, but deaths are much more reliably recorded. I don't know the specifics in Florida. There are a couple of states in the union where death certificates and causes of death um, are not rapidly reported. And actually this points to a more general problem. You know, as a nation, we are flying blind. It's like being on a plane without instruments why we don't have widespread testing, not so much, not just to treat the condition and fight the condition, but just simply to know where we're at. It's like we're trying to fight a war without radar. It's 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 a real uh, oversight in, in my judgment. We need to know where the virus is. We need to know how bad the virus is. We don't. If you look at deaths, you know, 17,000 deaths in Florida, it's a lot of deaths. And I think more death is coming, unfortunately. So, I'm concerned. I'm very concerned uh, about this. And and I'm not familiar with any respiratory pandemic in the last hundred years that hasn't come in multiple waves. We're in the beginning of the second wave now. And actually, there's going to be a third wave or and probably a fourth wave uh, in, a, in a year and then in two years from now. Now, those latter waves tend to get much less intense and tend to tamp down. This virus isn't going away. Um, so we have to do better at confronting it. Yale sociologist Nicholas Christakis. His book is Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. In Greek mythology, Apollo's arrows were infected with disease. Still to come, our conversation continues, weighing economic restrictions and protecting public health. We have to accept the reality that the germ is going to have a direct impact, regardless of what the government does, on our economy. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening. Early on in the pandemic, it became clear the fundamental debate over how to fight the spread wasn't over masks, but rather over restrictions. Nine days after President Donald Trump declared a national emergency in March, he tweeted, quote, we cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself, end quote. The presidential tweet was in all caps. 
It came after restaurants and bars in Florida were ordered shut down. Public schools were closed. Large parts of the economy suddenly stopped. It led to a sharp and deep recession. Unemployment skyrocketed in South Florida with the tourism and hospitality industries essentially closed for business. This tension between economic restrictions and public health remains central still to how communities will respond to fighting the spread of the disease now. I spoke about this with Yale sociologist Nicholas Christakis. His book is Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. We spoke on Friday. There's been an ongoing debate, the balance between public health measures and economic needs. How are the loosening of economic restrictions affecting the spread of the virus here seven or eight months into the pandemic? So unlike the debate about what are the case counts, see, this is what I would rather have. This is the conversation I would rather have. It's a more honest conversation among our politicians and the public. It's a more honest conversation among scientists. So as a nation, we could say, okay, this is how many people are dying of COVID. We're going to go out there. We're going to measure it reliably and accurately. And we're going to get a common body of facts. And then now we can have the ideological or policy argument about whether preventing that number of deaths is or is not worth it, given the consequences of shutting down the economy or slowing the economy, which itself also can cause deaths. I mean, poverty kills people. But that is, to my eye, that's a more mature and rational conversation. And then we're, we're no longer trying to say, well, I want to keep the economy open so let me do some shenanigans with the death certificates or let me reduce testing so people aren't aware of how many cases we have because I want to keep the economy open. Is it a stark choice between public health and opening the economy? I, I won't say it's a stark choice, but it is a dilemma. And it always has been a dilemma. I mean, in, in the plague of Athens in 430 BC, it, Thucydides talks about how the economy was shut down by the pathogen. And uh, in, in the bubonic plagues in Europe, of beginning in 1347, the economy shuts down in a time of plague. Those were shut down, though, because of the toll the virus was taking on the population. It wasn't because uh, a local city commission said, restaurants, you can only open at 25% capacity, was it? It was both. and mm. But you're highlighting another important distinction, which is government action versus uh, popular will. People aren't stupid. When there is a deadly germ afoot, people are going to reduce their activity level on their own. Sometimes these conversations devolve into a kind of semantics where we are debating whether it's the government that told no one to shut down the restaurants or whether people chose not to go to restaurants. The bottom line is people aren't going to the restaurants. We have to accept the reality that the germ is going to have a direct impact, regardless of what the government does, on our economy. Now, we can debate what the government should do also and what are the costs, the marginal costs of what the government is doing with respect to saving lives and costing money or costing lives. And then there's all kinds of shades of gray in that area, right? We can say, well, let's do a few things, but not many things. Right. Where do we draw the line? And that is a mature and difficult conversation to have. So from my point of view, it makes a lot of sense from a public health point of view to save lives because death is expensive. As you mentioned, people aren't stupid. When it's not healthy to go out, they're likely not to go out regardless of whether or not they're able to, whether or not there's a regulation that bans them. So is there a need for the kind of 
economic governors that have been applied early in this pandemic that have been loosening up. Well, but hold on a second. The reason the government is acting here is not to protect you from yourself. The reason the government is acting here, it, it's like the government regulates the speed at which you can travel on a highway, not just because it has an interest in making sure you don't slide off the highway and bang into a tree. No, the government wants to make sure you don't hit someone else and kill them. And that's the same. That's the that's the rationale for state action, right? In any in any free society, you're free to do what you want in your own home, but you're not free to you know fire a gun recklessly from your window and then hit other people or drive recklessly. So the rationale for state action, the reason we tell you to stay home, is not to protect you, although it does, is to protect others, to keep you from infecting someone else. You have no right during a time of contagion to spread disease. The state legitimately has. A power and always has had such power, has had quarantine power, has had uh, power to ban gatherings and even mandate masks and do all of these things in a time of uh, deadly disease. Talking generally about the state uh, as a concept, one state, Florida, where we are, where I am, has taken generally a hands-off approach with a few local restrictions here in South Florida, which has been the hardest hit area in the state. What types of protocol decisions are best made? by the state or by local officials? Well, I think, first of all, they're not mutually exclusive. I think when there is uh, a serious epidemic, there are multiple layers. There's the individual layer, the family layer, the local layer, the state layer, the national layer, the international layer. And I think one of the things you have to understand when a germ is spreading, it, the germ doesn't respect boundaries. So different nearby areas implementing different procedures affect each other. It's, it's sort of like designating one part of the swimming pool as where people can pee and, and hoping for the best. I mean, that's, that's not how it works. When that is spread. an analogy that will uh, sound very familiar to people here in South Florida. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, you know, if you have one county that's saying we're going to close our restaurants, but the adjoining county doesn't, that doesn't work that way when you have a contagious disease. So then should all counties have behaved in the same way? Yes, I think we needed a national strategy and we needed a state level strategy and we needed more coordination to more effectively fight this germ. I think what's likely to happen is right now the politicians aren't feeling the pressure of enough death and destruction. But when and if the death and destruction becomes greater, the public will clamor for restrictions. And then the politicians might act. But for a politician to get up and say, you can have our cake and eat it too, or to frame the conversation as if somehow the price of keeping the economy open is not more death, I just think that's immature and shows a fundamental lack of leadership. You write in the book, it can be difficult to differentiate the adverse economic impact of the virus itself from the adverse economic effects of the non-pharmaceutical interventions people implemented in response. In other words limiting capacity at restaurants or shutting down bowling alleys and movie theaters or mandating masks or social distancing, for instance. Mm -hmm. How is an economy to wrestle with this balance? It's not easy. I mean, you know, it would be like, imagine here another counterfactual. Imagine a dirty bomb had been detonated in Miami and there was just radiation everywhere. It's It would be hard to go about normal business, right? I mean, it is. there's a friction that's been introduced into our world that didn't exist before. 
the virus isn't going to go anywhere. So so we have to think about what is the wisest course of action for us going forward. What what procedures can we put in place? What investments can we make as a nation, for instance, in testing? Think about if we had instant rapid testing. Think about how easy it would be to have a cruise situation, for example. You you could you could take 2000 people, test them, have them spend two nights in a in a hotel, test them again, and then have them board the cruise ship. And you could greatly minimize risk by doing something like that if we had the capacity, if we'd made the investments in having inexpensive, widely available uh, testing. How does the possibility and the probability of a vaccine or vaccines affect actions and decisions that are being taken now here in late 2020? Well, if anything, I think the prospect of a vaccine should steal our spines to tolerate these restrictions for longer. If we actually believe that a safe and effective vaccine will be available in six months, the smart strategy for us would be to prevent further loss of life and, uh, you know, be disciplined. I was going to say hunker down. I'm not suggesting that we all need to stay at home right now, but, you know, we need to have some school closures, wear masks. So if we can do some of those things and then buy ourselves the time to get a vaccine, I think that's a wise course of action. Speaking with Nicholas Christakis, author of Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. More of our conversation is still to come, how the pandemic may reshape our jobs. Tying people's access to health care to their jobs in a time of a contagious disease makes little sense for them or for the rest of us. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast by searching Sunshine Economy on your podcast app. The pandemic has reshaped so many parts of our lives, from how we vote to how we work. Just as hundreds of thousands of people in South Florida turned to voting by mail this election, for those with jobs that allow it, their home has become their office. But the virus has done more than shifted workplaces for many. It has highlighted the connection between work and health care for so many Americans. Last year, before the pandemic led to hundreds of thousands of people losing their jobs in South Florida, two out of every five people in the state got health insurance through an employer. This is according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. And of course, many jobs, especially lower-paying, part-time jobs that are prevalent in the hospitality and retail industries, don't offer health coverage. And those industries were particularly hit hard by the pandemic. I spoke about how this virus will continue to affect how people work with Nicholas Christakis. He's a Yale sociologist who's written the new book, Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. We spoke on Friday. There's been so many dislocations in the economy, some of them mandated by executive orders and other policies, some of them just by practice, a lot of them by practice. How do you think the COVID-19 is going to change how we relate to work? I think there are going to be a a number of long-lasting changes. So even after 2024 and the post-pandemic period, we're going to return basically to normal, but with some persistent changes. You know, in the 1918 pandemic, prior to that, for example, it was very standard for all restaurants to have spittoons. And afterwards, 
the spittoons disappeared because they were rightly seen as unsanitary. And now you go into a restaurant, no one says, where's the spittoon? I mean, we're just, it's, it's, the world has changed, you know, because of the pandemic. The tuberculosis was another reason we got rid of spittoons. But anyway, I think this experience that we've had, this working from home, this telecommuting, the using of uh, these technologies for, you know, Zoom and so forth is going to have a long-term impact. I think many fewer people are going to hop on a plane and fly to another city for a one-hour business meeting because many of them will say, you know, actually this meeting, I don't need to do face-to-face. -face. I'm now used to using Zoom. Let's just both save the money and trouble of doing that. So I think there'll be some persistent changes in the travel, business travel, for example, related to this. I think there are going to be many, uh, many people, especially white-collar uh, employers are going to see that actually they could save money by having less space at the office and maybe even increase their workers' productivity by letting the workers to say, stay at home. Uh, this huge experiment, national experiment we've done with working from home. So we may say, see a shift in the real estate sector. In other words, demand for certain kinds of office space may decline because, in fact, people don't need offices to be as big anymore. Another change we might see that might be persistent is a change in gender roles and gender relations. So if you think about the stereotypical heterosexual couple, and of course, we're leaving aside homosexual couples and we're leaving aside single family, you know, single head of household families. So just for a moment, if we consider the stereotypic heterosexual couple. It's still the case, even in 2020, that most on average men make more money than women. And it's still the case, on average, that women have more of an interest in taking care of their children uh, than men do. What often is happening in households around the country right now, in many millions of households, given the tanking economy, is that uh, couples are sitting around the dining room table and they're saying, well, what, how can we deal with this? You know, we have little children at home. What are we going to do? And often the decision is made by that family, which is their right and is totally appropriate. They say, okay, well, honey, you know, you're going to stay home with the kids. Let's say this is the wife in this, you know, st stereotypic heterosexual couple. And, um, and the husband continues to participate in the labor market. Now, if, if millions of couples are making this decision, when you average it up across the whole population, what this means is that we may see after the pandemic is behind us, a regression in women's labor market participation that's very substantial, that puts us back 10 or 20 years in terms of the progress we've made in this front. So you see, there could be many, many consequences that uh, arise from this pandemic. Another consequence could be the effect on wages. Prior to the pandemic, unemployment rates were historically low, and we saw wage inflation beginning to pick up for the first time in a good long time, real increases in real wages, not just inflationary adjusted wages. And now the supply of labor in the United States is much larger than it was just a year ago, of course, because of the tens of millions of people thrown out of work because of the actions taken to slow the spread of COVID-19. Not just the actions taken because of the virus. I and mean, because of the virus. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, yeah sure. Definitely. So because of that, more people now looking for work, what could be the impact on wages in the years ahead as the pandemic continues and then as we pull ourselves out of it? Well, that's a complicated question. And, you know, the economy is extremely hard to predict. But um, if you look historically, what's interesting about a pandemic is that it's different than a war. So in a war, you have a lot of destruction of capital assets and some death. But in an epidemic, you have a lot of death, 
but not a lot of destruction of capital assets. You know, the farmlands, the buildings, the mines, the gold, all of that stuff is untouched. The roads, the hotels, the restaurants are still standing. They're still here. Exactly. All of that stuff is untouched. You just have people that died. So usually what happens is that in a time of serious pandemic, when you kill, let's say, working age adults especially, but leave the capital intact, is that over the next 40 years, peaking at around 20 years, you have a rise in real wages because labor now is scarce and so people have to pay for it and a, and a decline in real interest rates because capital is plentiful. It, you know, it, it, you know, many people died. Let's say during a bubonic plague, 50% of the people died. The capital base is still the same. It's now distributed over a different number of, you know, smaller number of people. But that's a little different than the pandemic we're facing now for many reasons. First of all, this pandemic, bad as it is, is not that lethal. I mean, it kills 1% of the people who get symptoms of COVID are expected will die. So that's a serious disease. But it's not as bad as smallpox, you know, or cholera. Right. And those who are most susceptible, the most vulnerable, are an older, usually non-working population. Exactly. Exactly. So unlike the 1918 pandemic, for instance, which decimated working age adults, this pandemic is primarily having its impact on, on the elderly. And so now, now, just to be clear, we have many tens of millions of young people in the United States, and and they also are at risk of dying. So young people should care about this condition. So if large numbers of young people get sick, there will also be some death. But but even so, it is the case that we're not going to have enough death to reshape the labor's pool in our society compared to, you know, smallpox or bubonic plague. So some of these predictions from past plagues are very difficult. And there are other factors that may affect the course of wages or interest rates over the coming 10 years. For example, the actions of the Fed pumping money into the system you know, usually this is hyperinflationary. Now, right now, we're not seeing any inflation because for complicated reasons that I don't fully understand, but that in include the fact that people aren't spending their money. But all this money is sloshing around. So when we get to 2024, I think it's quite possible that we will have significant inflation. One of the other key parts of work and our working life that this pandemic has shown a bright light on is healthcare. Of course. And the majority of Americans, working Americans, get health care through their jobs. How could this pandemic reshape the health care benefit when it comes to the employment market? I think the pandemic has shown some of the irrationalities in how we organize health care in this country. And one of the ways it's shown that is that tying people's access to health care to their jobs in a time of a contagious disease makes little sense for them or for the rest of us. It's the contagious nature of the disease that really heightens this, you know, why should I care if someone else doesn't have health insurance? When it comes to contagious disease, I don't want to get the disease from you. In other words, I don't want you to lose your health care because you've lost your job and as a result fail to get care that keeps you from spreading the disease to me. So this linkage of people's ability to access a healthcare system to their employment, in my judgment, doesn't make much sense. The kind of um, lunacy of this is highlighted when we recognize in a time of epidemic disease. Well, it's interesting, I think, a little bit that the tying of healthcare to jobs came out of another global disaster, which was World War II. And with veterans coming back into the workplace, the demand for labor so strong 
companies had to come up with additional benefits to attract labor to those markets. And healthcare was one of them. That's interesting. I did not know that bit of history. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure there, there are idiosyncratic, historically specific reasons why we, um, we have the system that we do. But I think the pandemic is a stress test that's highlighting some of the problems. Nicholas Christakis, the author of Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. Still to come, our conversation continues. The impact on two industries important to South Florida's economic future, tourism and healthcare. There's going to be a premium on um, safety as a service. And these might be high value added experiences, you know, more isolated accommodations, more room service so you don't have to go to restaurants, more testing. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Over the past year, all major employment sectors in the region have shed jobs, except for a small increase in financial services. The job losses have been most severe in the leisure and hospitality industry. Restaurants and bars were closed for weeks and were restricted on how much they could reopen when they could. Hotel occupancy is a fraction of what it normally would be. Cruise ships are docked. Business travel has been replaced by Zoom meetings. Hospitality and healthcare had been fueling the employment boom here in South Florida before the pandemic. In the year before COVID, one out of every three new jobs in the region were created in these two industries alone. 130,000 new jobs combined in hospitality and healthcare. Then the virus. I spoke about how the disease may continue to affect those important industries with Nicholas Christakis. He is author of the new book, Apollo's Arrow, the profound and enduring impact of coronavirus on the way we live. We spoke on Friday. Service industries have been greatly affected by this, particularly the hospitality industry. That has been in the bullseye of the target of the virus and of the public health measures taken to slow the virus. How does the hospitality industry pull itself out of this, do you think? What are the measures it needs to be thinking about today as it relates to 2022 and 2024 and the new normal that is going to continue to evolve? One of the ways that the industry could adjust, in my view, is that there's going to be a premium on um, safety as a service. So if you're able to organize yourself to provide experiences for people that are safe, for example, you can have, and these might be high value added experiences, you know, more isolated accommodations, more room service, so you don't have to go to restaurants, more testing. For example, I was reading about how Hawaiian Airlines, uh, when you go to the gate from, I, I can't remember if it was LA or San Francisco, to fly to Hawaii, because Hawaii has such a low low rate, they test you on departure and you get your results on arrival. Uh, you know, this is a very American ingenuity, capitalism kind of way of addressing these things. And so money is going to move around. I think there's going to be a premium on on safety as a service. And I think there are many ways in which the hospitality industry could evolve to provide some experiences for, for customers that they are willing to pay for or want. If we get federal investment in, in, in crucial technologies to enable that, you know, whether it's, uh, let's say, more comfortable masks or testing or other kinds of um, technologies or, of course, vaccines, ultimately, uh, I think, you know, I think we're going to get there. Leisure travel and tourism has been knocked flat because of the virus. Uh, is there a short-term optimism at all for a comfort level 
of Americans or others to return to travel, to return to the willingness to experience another location other than their own, you know, front yard or neighborhood? Well, I don't know. I mean, there, there are a number of problems here, the two problems I'm going to highlight. First is the is the local strategy problem. So, for example, look at me. I live in Vermont. If I came to Florida, the Vermont state has laws that say when I get back, I have to quarantine for 14 days. So let's say I wanted to come to Florida for the weekend and have some nice experience in Florida. I, I can't do that, not because of what Florida's rules are, but because of what Vermont's rules are. And this goes back to the question, the topic we discussed earlier about how a patchwork of rules doesn't suit our nation well. Uh, and distinctly from that, if you look at, there have been a number of surveys that have been done nationally, polls from various you know reputable polling firms that show that the average American is not interested in actually traveling because people, as I said, as we discussed, aren't stupid. Uh, most people, and uh, and you know, they they want to see that the situation is safe, that there's a vaccine, maybe there are more treatments, maybe the rates of uh, positivity have come down before they'd be willing to engage in normal pre-pandemic behavior. Let me ask you also about the healthcare industry. It had been an area of growth, employment growth, and wage growth for a good number of years. Certainly here in Florida, with our uh, growing population and aging population, the healthcare industry has uh, seen some growth. How does the pandemic affect that growth, even as the hospital systems themselves were initially under some pretty significant financial pressures? Well, this is one of the great ironies of the pandemic is that at a moment, you know, we have this extremely sophisticated, expensive healthcare system. At, at the moment when we needed it most, it became economically challenged. You know, many small hospitals were at risk of going out of business because the, we have this cockamamie way of paying hospitals for for elective procedures. They make their money on 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 elective procedures, and they lose money taking care of people who are dying during an epidemic. I mean, this is a an insane way to organize our system, and I think this is one of the long term changes. One of them is going to be perhaps in the way we reimburse healthcare in this country. We you know to make it profitable or or at least not a lost leader to take care of critically ill people during a time of a national crisis. For social and economic reasons, we've seen the transition to telemedicine, telehealth. This was beginning years before the pandemic. Like a lot of things in technology, it accelerated that change. Does that stick around? Yeah, I'm sure that's going to stick around. I mean, so many of the so many of the reasons people go to doctors are not clinically indicated, but they have to do with bureaucratic requirements. Like going to a doctor to get a prescription refill is just silly. We, and, and the reason oftentimes that happens is that that's the only way the doctor can get paid for their work. So, you know, having some kind of uh, insurance scheme where you pay doctors, uh, let's say, uh, some amount of money for refilling a prescription, whether you see them or not. Or for example, if you see your psychiatrist, why do you have to see that person in person? Why do many insurance companies require you to see the psychiatrist in person rather than over the internet? I can't think of a reason why that would be required. Is there many, you should let the psychiatrist decide clinically whether they need to see the person or not and pay them the same amount of money, whether they see them in person or not. You know, we've had dramatic changes in telehealth that have been forced on us by the epidemic. And I think those are going to stick around too. Speaking with Nicholas Christakis, a Yale sociologist, former hospice doctor, and author of Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. Now, still to come, we'll catch up with our bartender, baker, and banker navigating the pandemic economy. We're 
essentially saving about $100 a month just in rent with an extra room and double the space. So hopefully by January, we can have things up and running at least one or two locations in Miami. I basically have been telling you, oh, you know, my customers seem to be doing fine and people seem to be recovering, etc. And this was not this uh, customer story. We're back on the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening and supporting WLRN. The election is the big event this week, right? I mean, the results will shape and reshape how local communities and the nation continue responding to COVID-19, the health risks and the economic consequences from the virus. Now, each week we've been checking in with a bartender, baker and banker to hear how they've been getting along in this pandemic economy. They're awaiting the election results like the rest of us, and they're living their lives, operating their businesses, and making plans. Now, the plan for bartender Keisha Scott in Boynton Beach is to move back to Austin, Texas. She lost a job in the springtime when restaurants were closed down, but she was able to find a new position over the summer. Still, she and her boyfriend are preparing to leave South Florida next month. She told her boss at her Palm Beach County restaurant she was quitting last week. The reaction was not uh, not excited about it. They weren't upset. They understood. My owner told me yesterday that he would arm wrestle me um, to get me to stay. <laughs> They're going to keep the schedule as such. They know that I need the money, so I'll... I've got priority over shifts, and I'm pretty sure they're going to try to work me as much as possible until my last day. Uh, (laughs) The shifts are pretty short in general. It still gives me time to pack and and get things together. We've sat down and we've made a plan and a budget for ourselves and, uh, you know, cutting back on on little things and just making sure that the biggest thing is just not going bulk grocery shopping, which is something that's really easy to do. So now we're just like, okay, what are we going to have today? Let's just go get that. Because you know how it is. If you go to the grocery store, you always get stuff that's not on your list. So, so we figured it was best. Like that was the, the one of the first easy ways to cut back on some things. Um, and then the great thing is, is the place that we leased out part of the move-in special is that you don't pay your first full month's rent. So we just pay the pro rate to move in and then we don't have to pay rent in, in January. So it's kind of like we have a, we have a, a, a whole nother month to catch up. I mean, it, we're, Essentially saving about $100 a month just in rent with an extra room and double the space on top of just groceries being cheaper. If we decided to go out, eating and and drinking is cheaper and everything's just it's just more uh, economically sound over there, even even with the uh, the pandemic going on. I still I'm very much so in contact with all of my service industry friends and everybody's still doing well out there. So. Now just the the boyfriend and I are just making all the moves we need to to make sure we're prepared for the next five, five, six weeks that we have left here. Bartender Keisha Scott in Boynton Beach for now. Pilar Guzman Zavala expects to be busy this week driving around Miami-Dade County. She co-owns and runs Half Moon Empanadas. Less than a month ago, the company launched a rebranding effort, and now she's on the hunt for more space. 
She operates two spaces at Miami International Airport on campus at FIU and the University of Miami and its main location on East 79th Street in Miami. She's looking to add more outlets next year. Last week of October, it was a good week. Um, Nothing major, no major crisis, so that's good. (laughs) We, you know, we are closing the month and we looked into our, our numbers for our Ventanita. And I'm very pleased to see that, you know, sales are picking up, that, you know, the big effort with uh, launching the the new brand, you know, the refresh of the brand, uh, it's actually, you know, um, giving results. So it was good. It was good to see that we're, we're learning what it is to market digitally. And that's a completely new feel for me. We did it October 3rd, so uh, almost a month. Took a lot of effort to do uh, that launch. You know, I'm hoping that we, we need to be smart about continuing the momentum, right? And so that's where I'm right now. Like, okay, what's the next step and the next step for the next month? So the schedule looks uh, like we are getting into a, a deadline of December in our minds uh, of uh, having store locations in, in Miami. So we, we're looking right now very aggressively uh, for small uh, footprints in in um, the Wynwood area, in the South Miami Coral Gables area, there is going to be sadly inventory in the market for restaurants that need to get out. Now the challenge for us is getting the inventory that is small, you know, because we don't need a big footprint. Even we're looking to partner with locations, uh, other concepts, and maybe building a little half moon inside their own locations, you know, as a way to kind of help them and help us. So we're looking at everything. It's really been this past week and and what's coming is um, looking at locations and trying to come up with really second generation restaurants, not brand new empty locations to open small footprints. But it's challenging because there's not too many small footprints. So that's going to be the whole month of November. So hopefully we can by January, we can have things up and running at least one or two locations in Miami. Half Moon Empanadas CEO Pilar Guzman Zavala. Ginger Martin is the boss at American National Bank in Fort Lauderdale. It concentrates on commercial real estate lending. Over the past several weeks, she's been optimistic about what she's been hearing from most customers. And that continued in the last week, even with one tough conversation she had. One good news, I got a just an update from my lending team, and we have 14 new uh, deals in underwriting. So that means that we've got these loan requests, we've got all the information, uh, financial information that we need to submit those for the credit uh, department to see, uh, you know, if they would really qualify. And it's, it represents about $22 million. We've got like three churches. Um, we've got some non-residential construction. Uh, we've got a couple of HELOCs, so the home equity, you know, line of credit, and then about four term loans, and then just a couple of business, you know, lines of, of credit. So I, we kind of have a, you know, a mix uh, in there. So that was very uh, good news. But, you know, one thing I did want to share with you, I met with a longtime customer this week. He's been with American National Bank 20 years and successful, you know, business and I basically have been telling you, oh, you know, my customers seem to be doing fine and, and we see people seem to be recovering, et cetera. And this was not this uh, customer's story. And I actually got permission to use uh, his, his name. And it's Butterfly World. 
But High World has been in business for 34 years, and they've got uh, 35, you know, you know, full-time, you know, employees. And of course, they were closed down for the four months because of COVID, and they're really having a tough time. And uh, he shared with me that they've actually dropped their admission price from $32 to, you know, to 16. Uh, but the, you know, just even this rain that they've had, uh, they need about. 300 people uh, to break even because they've got $8,000 worth of overhead to cover on a daily basis. And when I think about what Butterfly World means to Broward County, just the educational benefit and all they've done for the schools, uh, I think it's a draw from a tourist you know, standpoint. And it's, it's sure sad to hear that he's not for sure he's going to be able to make it. I want to share both the, the good and the challenging, and so this customer is definitely concerned. American National Bank CEO Ginger Martin, the banker of our banker, baker, bartender, trio of women we hear from most weeks here on the Sunshine Economy as they operate through the pandemic economy. You can follow us on social media. Look for WLRN on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And also subscribe to our podcast. Search Sunshine Economy on your podcast app. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis, our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.